In her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, Annie Dillard writes the following. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awake one day and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. As Dillard points out, it's a problem when Christians forget, or as philosopher William Plaker suggests, when we domesticate the transcendence of God. This is one of the reasons we need scripture. Scripture gives us both, God's imminence and transcendence. In fact, scripture often veers wildly and disconcertingly from one to the other. Today's gospel is a prime example. It contains these mysterious words that a great light is seen by people sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Light, suddenly breaking into the muck and misery of this world, giving hope where there wasn't hope before. But we also have in this reading Jesus' own mysterious proclamation, heralding, the Greek word means, that the kingdom of heaven God's kingdom has come near, and they need to repent. Quick, do a U-turn. The very thing you've always longed for but were afraid was maybe just a dream. That beautiful, powerful, glorious thing has come near. Yes, this gospel reading, it gives us this tantalizing glimpse of God's transcendence. The great light come into the world and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew likes to write. We can't know all that those things mean. And so on one level, Dillard is right. It should inspire awe and maybe even terror. But we also know that this transcendence, this power, this otherness, is somehow also who we most long for. But then this scripture passage has other stuff in it. The reading moves suddenly between the mysterious and the seemingly mundane to a recently relocated rabbi who perhaps not 
coincidentally, is also related to a man recently arrested. He leaves Jerusalem and heads north to Galilee, traveling on unremarkable tracks to the unremarkable towns of Nazareth and Capernaum. This travelogue is followed in the text by this rabbi walking along the Galilean lake, calling out to two sets of brothers still laboring at their trade as fishermen. He tells them to come and be his disciples. The invitation is not an elaborate one. He says to them simply, follow me. But here's where it gets really interesting again. They actually did. They left their nets, their boat, their livelihood, and their father. I often wonder what poor old Zebedee thought of it all. These four fishermen dropped everything to follow the call of this Jesus, formerly of Nazareth. Anyone here today, or living across the ages, who has heard this call understands what happened. The light of the world came calling. The text doesn't explain it. It just describes it. And you know, throughout the New Testament, we see other people suddenly doing strange things as a result of this person, Jesus. A tax collector ups and walks away from a guaranteed income. A woman makes a spectacle of herself at a dinner party. A madman camped out in the tombs is suddenly in his right mind. Four friends cut a hole in someone's ceiling. A little girl whose death is already being mourned sits up and eats some lunch. A thief, while being crucified, asks to be remembered. A key religious leader lovingly wraps the corpse of a religious heretic. A scholar of the Jewish law begins to preach the very message he previously abhorred. Why did they do these things? It seems to have been because in Jesus, they encountered someone unlike anyone else. And just as surely as the whole of scripture shows us glimpses of God's transcendence and imminence, somehow in this person, Jesus, this transcendence and imminence met perfectly and met them. Further, this passage tells us how Jesus met and called these fishermen brothers. First it says, he saw them. It would be an easy thing to overlook in the text, wouldn't it? He saw them in their everyday ordinariness, in which they might not have been expecting a whole lot out of life, enough to pay the rent, make ends meet, and if they were lucky, a little bit besides. 
But Jesus saw something else for them. Secondly, Jesus spoke to them. Follow me. Come along. I'm going to make something different out of your lives. Sounds like less of an invitation and more of a commandeering, wouldn't you say? And finally, Jesus gave them a promise attached to that commandeering. He says, I'm going to make you fish for people. This promise seems to be at the very heart, the very point of him calling them. And this is why disciple-making is not just one thing the church is to be about. It is to be at the very heart of what the church is to be about. Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Andrew, Peter, James, and John couldn't have known that day all that would come as a result of their response, just as we can't know what will come from our response, wherever you are called. They couldn't see that as the result of their following Jesus that day, that particular day, that their fishing would have resulted in such an amazing catch 2,000 years later. For the fish they caught, in turn, became fishermen. Their being sent out with the message of the light of the world started something that rippled across the ages. From the first apprentices of Jesus gathering in the temple courts in Jerusalem, to groups of Hellenistic Christians meeting in homes along trade routes all across the Greco-Roman world. From entire Germanic tribes being baptized in European rivers, to Celtic monks setting off for distant shores in their little hide-covered curacs, from Jesuits arriving in snowy Huron villages on Turtle Island, to Victorian men and women setting out in the first steamships bound for India, China, Japan, and across the continent of Africa. From today's reverse missionaries coming to the West from China, Nigeria, Guyana, to the most recent new millennial apprentices of Jesus. It all started with those words recorded in today's gospel reading, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Well, that's not quite right, is it? The transmission of the gospel started not with the words, but with the encounter and the shaping by Jesus. They first thought of him as Jesus, previously of Nazareth. But they came to know him as Jesus the Christ, their Lord and Savior. And you know, within just two decades, 
Here is how these early followers were describing this Jesus who called them. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in ev- that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, as is recorded for us in Colossians 1. That is the sort of thing that comes out of people who are encountered by the light of the world, who is also Jesus of Nazareth, who was born, lived, was crucified, and was raised to life again. He is the message we bear. May we never forget that he has commandeered us to share the good news of his kingdom come and coming so that those who still sit in darkness and in the shadow of death may meet and be changed by him. Amen.